We're closing the book of Ruth this morning as we enter into the season of Advent. Uh, Advent has historically in the life of the church been a season in which we look back and reflect upon the first coming of Christ and look forward to in anticipation of his second coming, his second arrival. That's what the word Advent means. It just means arrival. And so as we enter into this season, we want to close the book of Ruth together by looking at the genealogy, which I know for some of you are thinking that's going to be incredibly stimulating this morning, right? But don't judge me too soon, all right? Um, Because we left the story last week in the book of Ruth in chapter 4, seeing the legal resolution uh, to the issue at stake of Boaz securing the first position and then marrying Ruth. And then when they consummated that marriage, God gave conception and a child is born. And we saw last week that what what God does oftentimes in our lives is that as he empties us of ourselves, he does so in order to fill us. God fills those who are empty. We see all the emptiness Naomi experienced in chapter 1. God was filling in chapter 4. As she lost family in Moab, she regained family in Bethlehem as God blessed her. And he began to fill that emptiness and that void. In addition, we saw last week that what God was doing in the bringing of Ruth back from Moab to Bethlehem, because Ruth said, listen, I identify more with Yahweh and his people than I do with my people and their gods. And so I'm going to come back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And what God was doing in that process, providentially, he was beginning to graft a foreigner into his family, which was his purpose from the very beginning. To take people who were born isolated and separated from him and grafting them into his family as sons and daughters. You see that in Ruth's life. And you see it, I've seen it in mine. Because <laughs> I wasn't born as a son or daughter of God. I was born as a son of God. I wasn't born as one who was an heir to the covenant promises. I was born as one separated from him, and so were you. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's only because God's turned you as a foreigner into his son or daughter. He's made you family. So that's where we left off last week, seeing these movements in chapter 4 in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. And this morning, we want to read this text before us, verses 18 to 22, these five verses at the end of the book of Ruth, and see what they have to say to us as well. So in Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, it says this, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse, he fathered David. Now, uh, for those of you familiar with a postscript, most of us are familiar with a PS on a postscript because if you ever, do you remember back in the day before you could send email and before you could actually like text somebody, you actually had to pull out a piece of paper. I know some of you hadn't seen one of those in a while, but a piece of paper with lines on it, all right? Actually had lines and you, you wrote a letter to someone and then you got to the end of the letter and you go, oh, I forgot to say this. And so you put a little PS at the end of the letter to add some additional information, right? And so you put P.S., and then you wrote the additional information, folded it up, put it in the envelope, and mailed it off to whomever you were sending it to. Most of us are familiar with postscripts from that particular experience. But listen, in film, I want you to consider something. In movies, postscripts function differently than just tacking on some additional information at the end of a letter. Have you ever seen one of those movies? Most of us have seen one of those movies that are based on real life events with, that, 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 that come out of real experiences with real people and real things that happened in history, 
right? And so maybe you watch the movie, and as the scenes unfold over the course of those two hours, you're watching, you're watching all the events, you're watching everything transpire on the screen in front of you, and then you get to the end of the movie, and at the very end of the movie, right, it kind of moves into that kind of slow-mo still frame of the main character's faces, and then underneath their, 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 their picture there on the screen, there's these subtitles that begin to appear. And it says, this person went on to do X, Y, and Z. And then this person went on to do this. And this person went on to have these kids who eventually went on to do this. And then this person went on to do this. And it kind of gives you a full rundown of what took place subsequent to that story. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those movies before where those subtitles come on and they kind of run there along the of the screen they're giving a little bit of context to the legacy of history and those those postscripts in movies aren't just the appendage of a little additional information at the end of the movie what they are is this they are the end toward which every scene in that movie is moving Every conversation in that film, every experience that you witness on the screen is moving towards that end because there is a significance to that story that is playing out before your eyes that transcends those characters and goes beyond those experiences. And listen, the way this genealogy is written in the book of Ruth, it functions in much the same way. It is not just an appendage at the end of an otherwise riveting and captivating story. It's not just a list of ten names that you can kind of gloss over as you read through the end of the book of Ruth. That's not how the genealogy works here. Rather, what this genealogy is, listen, it is the climax of the story. It is the peak of the narrative. It is the pinnacle of what was taking place in Act 1, in Act 2, in Act 3, in Act 4. Everything in the story of the book of Ruth in these four chapters is moving toward this end in these five verses, these ten names, and this genealogy. That's the way this works. Now listen, biblical genealogies, right? there's typically two types. There's, there's what's called, scholars call segmented genealogies and then what's called linear genealogies, right? And this genealogy, it traces the line of David, doesn't it? It traces the line of David from just on the heels, right, of the age of the patriarchs through the exodus, through the days of the judges, and to the days of David's reign, and it, it's, it's not a segmented genealogy because a segmented genealogy is this. It's kind of like a segmented genealogy kind of traced the, the common ancestry of groups of people. So like this family and this tribe and this clan or this nation. And what a segmented genealogy did, it showed that these people over here were somehow related to these people over here because they had a common descent. It didn't trace every name through in a sequential order. But linear genealogies, they do. And they move from the first entry to the last entry. And oftentimes, scholars tell us that these linear genealogies function to give credibility or legitimacy to the last person in the list of names to hold an official office or position. And so the way this genealogy, and that's, that's what this genealogy is, it's functioning this way. It functions to show David's legitimacy, his credibility to rule and reign in his day. And so many scholars believe that this genealogy was written to support David's claim to rule, even though he had Moabite blood running through his veins and only a couple of generations removed. The whole story's moving towards this. 
It's moving towards the defense of David's rule, the defense of David's reign, because David, outside of Moses, is perhaps the most significant character in all of the Old Testament, in all of Israel's history. Consider a few stats with me. That the 40 years of David's rule, the 40 years in which he reigned, they occupy nearly 10% of all the historical writings from Israel's history. Think of all the hundreds of years, and these 40 occupied such a significant portion, 10% of all of Israel's history, recorded history. In addition, of the 102 chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles combined, 42 of those chapters are about David's life. They're about David's rule, about David's reign. Nearly half of those three books combined are about David's story. Furthermore, David was the first legitimate king anointed by the prophet Samuel. And all the messianic hopes of God's people, they were grounded in the covenant promise made to David by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so many scholars look at this genealogy and they say this was written to defend David's right to rule. And it did so, listen, by showing off the godly character of his great-grandparents and, and setting forth the conditions by which he came to be the product of this marriage between an Israelite man and a Moabite woman. And he had Moabite blood coursing through his veins. That's where this genealogy fits in. It's, everything's moving towards this. It's the point and purpose of the entire book. See, two Old Testament scholars, and when I told you their names right now, you'd be like, I have no idea who they are, so I'm going to leave their names out. But listen, two scholars commenting on this genealogy, they say this. They say that this, this genealogy, it forms not only the end, but the starting point of the history contained in this book. Because what it does is it pulls the significance of the story of Ruth and Boaz out of its original context, and it shows how God is working to enfold this this otherwise random marriage into his grand purposes to bring blessing to and through his people. That's what's going on here. That's why we can't read the genealogy and go, it's just a list of 10 names. What's the next book? Because there's deep significance to it. Now listen, I realized something this week as I was preparing. I realized that, that for most of us, right, genealogies and lists of names in the Bible, right, they have brought many a reading plan to a screeching halt, okay, right, you start in Genesis, you're like, man, I'm tracking here, there's some good stuff going on, I see covenant promises, and I see characters, and I see patriarchs, and I see all this, at Exodus, man, people are in Egypt, and God's plagues, and miracles, and bringing them out, and maybe I even make it through Leviticus, right, all the, the law that God gives to his people, and all the commands and precepts, and then I get to Deuteronomy, and Moses' farewell sermon before the people go into the land, and he, he kicks the bucket, right, right, and then I get to the book of Numbers, and it's like somebody slams on the brakes like right because there's so many names and lists of names throughout the book of numbers and it just brings that to a screeching halt because we find them to be kind of stale and kind of boring right some of us may think like genealogies are the cure to my insomnia right instead of counting sheep I just read the bible and count names and eventually I just kind of doze off but listen I want you to consider something, that genealogies in general, and this one in particular, they teach us something. And they may teach us lots of things, but the, I got one point for you this morning, and it's this, is that gene, this genealogy in particular teaches us to think legacy. 
not immediacy. To think legacy, not immediacy. Listen, one of the innate longings of the human heart that every one of us has, one of the deep desires of our lives is to have a life that is significant, a life that counts for something, a life that matters. We're all searching for significance and we may look for it under every rock and in every nook and in every cranny of our lives. But I want, to, I want you to consider something, that our significance, that the significance of your life, your life counting, your life mattering for something, is almost always wrapped up into the story that you are writing for yourself or the story that you are being written into. Right, one of those two things, either I'm writing this story for my life on my own, or I'm being written into a bigger story which gives my life meaning and gives my life significance. And yet, one of the things this genealogy teaches us is the full significance of someone's life. Listen, and this is so beautiful, the full significance of your life, the full significance of my life, it can never be measured in your lifetime. Never. In fact, it can only be measured, the full significance of your life can only be measured after your death. And sometimes even generations removed from your death. This is what we see in this list of names at the end of the book of Ruth, is that the significance of this story gets wrapped up in God's purpose to bring forth the greatest king in Israel's history. Listen, the significance of Naomi's trip to Moab and Ruth's return to Bethlehem in chapter 1, the introduction to Boaz in chapter 2, the fateful night of the threshing floor in chapter 3, the legal resolution and communal celebration in chapter 4. The significance of all of that story would not be known in their lifetime. The fullness of it would never be seen in their lifetime, but it would only come to light after their death. Because who knew, right? Who knew that the famine and the death and that barrenness in chapter one was setting the stage for the birth of a young boy? The youngest of his family. One whom even his father did not consider to call in from the fields when Samuel shows up to anoint the next king of Israel but would be anointed by Samuel to rule and reign over God's people. Who knew? Who knew, right, that the provision of food and protection in chapter 2 was paving the path for this anointed king who would shepherd his father's flocks in the fields, fighting off both lion and bear to defend his father's flocks and would one day slay the enemy of Israel's armies on the battlefield with five stones and a sling and then when he fell to the ground would take Goliath's sword and chop his head off with his own sword. Who knew that Boaz feeding Ruth in chapter two would lead to what takes place in the books of First and Second Samuel? Who knew that the evening of the threshing floor when Boaz committed himself to Ruth was moving history toward God's commitment to his people through David and a promise that there would always be a descendant or a son of David on the throne over his people forever. Who knew that Boaz's plan to secure the legal first position to marry Ruth two generations removed would result in the birth of the greatest king in Israel's history? No, they didn't know that. No one knew that. 
that does not come to light until after their death. But listen, listen, the story doesn't even stop there. Doesn't stop there. Because if you read further into the Bible, you see that the, the story of Ruth and Boaz gets wrapped up not only in the high point of Israel's history, but listen, it gets wrapped up in the high point of all of human history. Because if you fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, this is what you're going to see. It's going to say, And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, follow me because there's going to be a quiz afterwards, all right? And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." Who knew that all these events in the book of Ruth were setting the stage not only for the high point in Israel's history, but for the high point in all of human history? The birth of Jesus himself, God in the flesh, that God through this would be working to not leave you and I even today without a redeemer without a king to rule, without a king to reign, and that he would be the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as the descendant who would rule and reign eternally on the throne over God's people. Who knew, right? Who knew that generations removed from the acts of loyal love and kindness recorded in the four chapters of Ruth would emerge the joy of man's desiring holy wisdom? Love most bright. And who knew that out of the union between an older Israelite guy and a young Moabite gal, that what God would do was bring forth he who was veiled in flesh, the Godhead upon whom we have laid eyes. Who knew that the union and all the emptiness that experienced in the first chapter, God would one day pour himself and his son, the firstborn over all creation, the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made. They could not see that then. Which means the full significance of your daily life will never come to light until after your death. It will never be seen. Because in that return from Bethlehem, returning back to the house of bread because God had visited his people and there was bread once again in the house of bread would one day, many generations later, lead to the birth of the bread of life. Who knew? 
See, this genealogy teaches us to think legacy, not immediacy. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way. He said, the explanation for much that takes place in our lives lies well beyond our own lives. And it may be hidden from us all throughout our lives. For God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. He has the lives of others in view, even those yet unborn. See, the book of Ruth was not written to give you a manual on dating relationships. It may give some hope to some of you singles who still long to be married. It may give you hope that God in His providence would bring to you a person with whom you could share life and serve and worship and honor Him. But it was not written for that purpose. It wasn't, even, it wasn't written to show you how to conduct legal transactions, right? You gather all the elders at the gate and go sit down, take off sandals, exchange property, right? It wasn't written to show you how to conduct legal transactions. There might be some wisdom there to glean from it, but that's not its purpose. See, the, let, me, let, me, let me try and break it down as straightforward as I can for you. The purpose of this book, the purpose of the book of Ruth is this. It's to show that how God in his providence directs the affairs of his people to accomplish his purposes. God in his providence directs the affairs of his people to accomplish his purposes. It gives us a glimpse of how God writes his people into redemptive history. Into the big story that he is telling. That's what you see here in this genealogy. Everything in the story is moving towards it. It teaches to think legacy and not immediacy. But you and I, we have a problem with that. A big one. There's a couple of obstacles that stand in our way from thinking about legacy and those who are coming after us and not just us ourselves. And, and, and the first one is this, is that we live in a culture that is saturated with immediacy. We live in a, listen, we live in a culture in which everything can be expedited. Case in point, Amazon Prime. Now listen, I have an Amazon Prime subscription. I'm actually waiting on some rollers for a vacuum at my house that I need to repair that are coming to me within 48 hours because I have an Amazon Prime subscription, right? Some of you think, man, your life is super exciting. <laughs> you ordered vacuum rollers off of Amazon Prime, right? But listen, Amazon, well, Amazon Prime is incredibly convenient, but what it also does is it cultivates and nourishes a desire to have what we want when we want it. Have it immediately, immediacy. Another case in point, the microwave oven. Listen, before the advent of the microwave, you actually had to prepare fresh food, put it into the oven, set the oven at a temperature, and wait for it to come out. You couldn't just grab a bag of chicken nuggets, throw them on a plate, and nuke them for 45 seconds and have dinner, right? Whether it's good for you or not. Right? There's, an, there's a sense of immediacy that our culture is saturated with and we crave immediacy. And because we crave immediacy, here's what we want. See, those, those, those are just kind of common illustrations, but they bleed over into deeper, more significant areas of our life. And they begin to affect our longing to live lives that matter, lives that count, lives that have significance, and we want to see the results of it today. We want to know it now. But oftentimes, our every
everyday acts and steps of obedience and yielding to God as opposed to yielding to our flesh and honoring God rather than honoring men and loving God rightly so we can love the things of this world in their proper place. All of that takes a back seat to our insatiable desire for immediacy. Because, it's the, 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 because we, we don't want to think about what's coming after our death. We want to know what we're going to get in this life. Not legacy, immediacy. And listen, sometimes that legitimate desire, here's the second problem we have with this, sometimes that legitimate desire to live a life that counts, to live a life of significance, to live a life that matters, it gets sucked up into idolatry. And here's what I mean by that, right? There are a couple of big stories that our culture is telling us that says if you want your life to matter, if you want significance, here's where you can find it and you can have it today, right? You can measure its length, you can measure its breadth, you can measure its depth, you can measure its width, you can determine its cubic volume, you can know how much fluid that sucker holds, right? How big is your significance when you set it on the scale? You can measure it by these things now, not later. And the first one is this. Right, the first one is this, is the, is, is the big story that our culture is telling us called consum- radical consumerism. Radical consumerism. Listen to what, consumerism is this, in essence. Consumerism tells us a story about who we are based on what we buy. The bra- we are the brands we buy. Our identity is defined by the experiences that we have. We're told a story that we are who we are based on where we shop, the food that we eat, the things that we drink, the toys and tools that we have in our garage, the clothes in our closet, the furniture in our home, the car in our driveway. This is what defines you and you can measure your significance here and now on the basis of the things that you have. You can measure it. Because in the story that consumerism is telling you, perception is the king It rules over everything. And so how others perceive me determines the level of significance in my life. How much does my life matter is determined by how others perceive me based on what I've come to possess, acquire, and achieve. Or the experiences that I've had. The places that I've traveled. The things that I've done. It's a consumer orientation to life. And the story of our culture is saying you can have significance and you can have it now. And you can measure it in these ways. With these benchmarks. Listen, HGTV has a story that it's telling you. The Food Network has a story that it's telling you. Right? Amazon.com has a story that it's telling you. It's saying significance is here, significance is here, significance is here. It's immediate and measurable and quantifiable now. Immediacy, not legacy. See, this, the second big story that our culture is telling us is this. Not only is it, is it rampant consumerism, radical consumerism, but it's also what, what's, what scholars have dubbed as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. This is a term first coined by a guy named Robert Bella in his book called Habits of the Heart, but a man by the name of Trevin Wax describes it this way. He says, according to this way of thinking, the goal of life is to discover and express your unique sense of self, no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom of personality. 
The narrative arc of your life, the story of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you. Your society, your family, your past, or your church. Close quote. Individualism tells us that you are what you feel. That you look deep inside, discover your own meaning, discover your own purpose, and you live that out into the world regardless of the relationships that it severs, regardless of the consequences that you endure for, for it. That's what expressive individualism tells you. It says the way that you will be significant is if you are free from any external obligations or demands and you can be free to be who you find yourself to be in here. That's where you'll find a significant life. When you're not measured by any external obligations, any external parameters, any external commands, that's where you'll find significance. That's where your life will have meaning. And that's where you will matter. Right? And consider the heroic stories in our culture that are being told to us today all have that narrative arc to them. They all have that narrative arc to them. Case in point, the movie Frozen. Now, for those of you who had kids that were very young whenever that movie first came out, you probably have a little bit of PTSD because that song is just ingrained into your psyche. And you, you think, man, I, I just forgot. I, I just stopped singing it. I'm going to bring it back up for you, and you can hate me for it. But, but listen, Elsa's character in that story, right? Consider the way that that story unfolds. Right? She has to live out what she finds inside to be true about herself, no matter the relationships that it severs, the damage that it does, the isolation she feels. She has to be courage- courageously be her own woman, fight convention, be true to herself, right? regardless of what anyone else thinks or what, what anyone else says. And then in the song, it says this, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. In other words, I don't care what consequences come from my choices and decisions to live out what I find in myself. I don't care who it isolates from me. I don't care who it pushes away. I don't care what damage that it does. I'm going to be true to myself. And then she, the song goes on to say, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. And then it says this, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That is expressive individualism at its finest. At its finest. And as one of the narrative arcs of stories in our culture that's that's telling you, if you want to live a life of significance, you cannot let any external parameters define for you significance and a life that counts and a life that matters looks like you have to find it inside for yourself and live it out and that is the water that we are drinking and the air that we are breathing day after day after day after day after day in our culture and yet what you see in the story of Ruth and Boaz is this it's something that's not radical consumerism but is actually very costly And what you see in the story of Ruth and Boaz is not expressive individualism because they are bound by something bigger than themselves. The the law of God, the word of God, the character of God. 
And their significance comes not because they have consumed, but their significance, they get written into God's redemptive purposes because they have contributed and laid their lives down at great cost to themselves. And it doesn't come because they found their own inner way to navigate through life, but it comes because they've brought themselves under the parameters of God's word and they've walked in step in holiness and obedience. That's where their significance comes from. These two stories are being told to us day after day after day after day. So what do you do about it? Listen, here's what, here's what I want to land this morning. And, 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 and let's talk about what, how do we respond to this? Right? How do we shift because we live in a culture that is saturated with immediacy and it turns into idolatry. And so we're told these stories that you can have, measure all your significance here and now by these benchmarks. So how do we move then from immediacy to legacy and begin to adopt the perspective of the author of the book of Ruth and God's perspective in things? That he's not just working in your life for your life, but for the lives of others, even those who haven't, not even a twinkling in their parents' eye yet. How do we move? First thing is this, listen. You have to learn to shift your aim. You have to learn to shift your aim. Now one of the, one of the shows that I used to watch on HGTV, not HGTV, History Channel, that's where it was. History Channel, it's called Swamp People. I know you're giggling already. Swamp People, those are my people. That's where I grew up. I know I don't sound like them, but that's where I come from. That's my roots, all right? And so I, I love this show because it showed, like, all these, it chronicled the lives of these alligator hunters in South Louisiana. Uh, and so they, 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 these are all places that I had driven through. I had family that lived in. I, I maybe knew people who came from there in college. And so I, I, I got to, you know, just... Brought me back to my roots a little bit, seeing all the moss hanging from the trees and the swamps and the marshes and the alligators, right? We had those in our backyard as a kid. Just kidding. Most of you think that's true. Um, but I remember watching this show, and the way that they would catch alligators is they would go out into the canals and bayous and rivers and streams, and they would take these big heavy pieces of rope and heavy gauge hooks and big chicken pieces of chicken or, or fish or anything else that would just rancid really literally they would just they wouldn't refrigerate it set it out all night to where it smelled as horrible as possible and they would put that on the hook and they would hang it just above the water off of a sturdy branch of a tree and so the, they would hang there and the alligator would catch the scent of it as the blood dripped down into the water and they would come up and it would come up and it would it would grab it would come out of the water to grab that piece of meat and it would suck it back down and as it chewed it up that heavy gauge hook would then become lodged in its stomach and so the alligator could not swim away. And so here it is at the bottom of the, of the river, the bottom of the marsh, it's kind of hanging out there. Well, when the hunters came back by to check their lines, they would grab the line, they would feel a little tension on it, and then they were in for the fight of their lives, right, depending on the size of the alligator. And so usually you had a two-man team, and lots of these were father and son combos. And so I remember watching one episode in which the father and son, they were hunting together, and they come across a line that had a big alligator on it. And so the dad gets up to the top front of the boat, and he grabs the line. And, and I don't know why they do this, but they do it without gloves, man. I, I just... It's my people, you know? And so they, he grabs the line and he begins to fight and wrestle this alligator. And it's just like, it's like twisting and doing the alligator death roll because sometimes it could snap the line if they rolled it over enough and created enough tension on it. And so it's, 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 he's wrestling and he keeps yelling at his son, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. 
And so his son take, lines up to take the shot with a rifle, and he pulls the trigger. Now, if, it, if you don't hit the alligator in the quarter-sized kill spot on the top of its head, there's one place that you can, is a guaranteed kill, and it's about the size of a quarter, and it's on the top of their skull, where there's a little soft spot there. But if you miss that spot, and you hit their hide, or their other bony orifices, it's just going to ricochet off, or it might injure them, but it won't kill them. And so he lines up the shot, and he pulls the trigger, and the alligator keeps fighting, and the father's just yelling, shoot him, shoot him! And so he shoots again, and misses him again, and shoots again, and misses him again. And finally, the dad is beside himself, right? And there's a few little bleeps on the bottom of the screen. And, and so he, he takes the gun, and he puts it down on the alligator's head. And he puts it right on the kill spot, and he pulls the trigger. And the alligator stops fighting and they pull it up into the boat. What they come to realize afterwards is that as much as the son was trying to aim for that kill spot on the alligator's head, the sights on his rifle were off. And so it, it, it was going to the left or to the right every single shot. He was missing the target. And he had to recalibrate the rifle in order to hit the target. And listen, this is, this, is, this is a part of the process of moving from immediacy to legacy is that you have to learn to recalibrate the sights on what you're aiming at. You gotta shift your aim. You gotta shift it because your natural drift, my natural drift is always gonna be toward immediacy. Always. But you gotta recalibrate and shift your aim toward legacy and aiming at legacy because you're always going to drift toward immediacy so you got to constantly pull back over and aim at legacy and somebody say how do i know if i'm aiming at legacy let me give you a few benchmarks a few places to measure that the first one i'll, I'll say is this aiming for legacy over immediacy will affect the way that you love your spouse if you're married in this room you want to get real tangible and practical affect the way that you love your spouse and here's why in first corinthians chapter 13 when the apostle paul says love is patient and love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it's not arrogant it's not self-seeking nor is it rude he goes on at the end of that description of love to say it bears all things it believes all things it hopes all things and it endures all things if you are drifting toward immediacy, I want you to consider something in the way that you relate to your spouse. And then, listen, Karen can testify. I have to, there needs reciting in my life consistently. But as you're drifting toward immediacy, here's what happens. You cease to bear things. You cease to come alongside of them and shoulder their burdens with them. But it just becomes about you, right? Because you're an individual and you've got to find your own meaning. Your meaning's not found in serving somebody else. You see what I'm saying? So you drift. You stop bearing things with them. You stop believing things. You give up on the relationship because you think they are never going to change. You lose hope of any kind of a better future ahead, even though you're in the midst of difficult struggles in the relationship. And you stop enduring. Because if, if, if my significance is going to be found through finding my inner person and living that out and consuming things that don't require anything of me, then why would I put up with this? Why would I endure this? And marriages eventually begin to dissolve. But if you're aiming at legacy instead of immediacy, here's what happens. Then you come alongside and you shoulder whatever they're bearing. You continue to believe that God's grace, they are not beyond it, 
but that He can change them. And He can change you too, because maybe the issue is you too. And so you just continue to have hope for this better future, and you endure hardship and turmoil because you're aiming at legacy. You want you, you, you want at the end of the age to stand with a great cloud of witnesses and look back and see how God has used those faithful acts of obedience day after day after day, bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring. I don't have time to go into all the others, but let's, I'll, I'll do one more. If you're a single adult, we want to be equal opportunity. If you're a single adult, how do you know if you're aiming at legacy instead of immediacy? Listen, let me tell you this. One of the ways that you know you're aiming at legacy instead of immediacy is because in the way that you pursue and are pursued in covenant relationships and dating relationships, here's what it begins to look like, right? While physical attraction is a part of a relationship, listen, if you're aiming at immediacy, you know what, as you drift toward immediacy, you know what happens? Is you begin to see physical attraction, hotness, cuteness, whatever verbiage you want to put on it, as the pinnacle of what you want in a spouse. It's what we are trained to think in this culture. By the images that are projected on screens. And we want to consume the physical appearance of someone else. But listen, if you're aiming at legacy, young men and young women, if you're aiming at legacy, then you know what? Physical attraction is still a part of that chemistry, but you know what trumps hotness is holiness. You know what? You're more concerned about character than cuteness. Because I'll I'll tell you something. One day, one day all that cuteness is going to wrinkle up and what you're going to be left with is character. That's how you know you're aiming at legacy. You've got to shift your aim. And I want to close with two quick things as we finish this morning. How do, you, how do you begin to recalibrate that? One way you do that is you learn to mock your gods. Learn to mock them. Your little G-gods. You mock them. You ridicule them, right? Because consumerism and individualism are the expression of little g-god in our culture that's operating, saying you can find everything that you want in life today, now, in this moment. But you have to learn to look in the face of expressive individualism and saying, I'm gonna look inside, find who I wanna be and live that out and say, you are not the path to significance. You are not the path to lasting joy. You are not the path to fullness and flourishing. If consumerism is the God that has kind of captivated your heart and soul and you're drifting towards that, you have to learn to look at your, uh, all the stuff that you have in your garage, all the stuff that you have in your closet and say, you are not the path to lasting joy. You are not the path to fullness and flourishing. You will not bring me the significance that my heart longs for and craves because the only thing that will ultimately bring you the significance that you long for, that's a legitimate human desire, the only thing that will give you that sense of your life mattering is if you throw your life into a story that is bigger than yourself and that goes beyond this age. That's the only way. So you have to learn to mock your gods, kind of like Elijah did in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18 when he's there with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And they're like, who's the true God? So they come up with, a, they devise a little scheme, like how are we gonna determine who the true God is? And so all the, Elijah says, listen, 
You guys go ahead and, and take first position here. You can bat first, I'll bat second. And so Elijah, they build an altar and they put a sacrifice on the altar and then the prophets of Baal dance around that altar day, hour after hour after hour calling out to their gods in desperation to come down and lick up the sacrifice with a tongue of fire. And nothing happens. And finally Elijah goes, man, you know what? Maybe you guys aren't talking loud enough. Maybe he's, maybe he's musing. Maybe he's thinking really hard about something and you've got to get his attention. Talk a little bit louder. Or maybe he's on vacation, right? Maybe he's down on the, maybe your gods are down on the beach somewhere, right? Sitting in a little chair under a palm tree and maybe they've got to come back from their journey. Or maybe your God is indisposed at the moment in the bathroom, right? He's got a number two. He's trying to work out somewhere. Like that's, that's literally what he says. He's mocking their gods because he knows the one true God, the only one that will provide the meaning and significance that he longs for. And so what does he do when it comes to his turn? He drenches the altar with water and cries out to God and God laps up all the water and consumes the sacrifice, showing himself to be the one true God. Listen, you have to look at all the Black Friday sale papers that come in your mailbox and in your email box and say, all of these tech tools and toys, they may be useful gifts, but they are useless gods. They're useless. If I spend my life in that story, I will never, I will never reach the kind of significance that I want to have for kingdom purposes. But I'll be a part of this small story it doesn't stretch beyond myself and doesn't stretch into the age to come. It helps you recalibrate your sights, mocking your gods, and then seeing your place. Seeing your place. See, so many of us, because we live in an individualistic culture, we think that our lives are like golf or running. Right? We think that our lives, right, I can just take my golf club out of the course, pay my green fee, pay my cart fee, get in the cart, and go hack it up, right, for four hours. And I don't have to have anybody else with me to do that. But the Bible over and over again shows us, even through genealogies like this, that your life is not an individual sport, but a team one. And that you are standing on the shoulders of the people who've come before you, and there will be people who stand on your shoulders who come after you. To move from immediacy to legacy, you've got to see your place. You've got to see that what God has in mind is not just you here and now in Fate, Texas in 2017, but perhaps He has in mind. Through your faithfulness today to raise up someone who would have phenomenal fruitfulness in kingdom ministry in the future. All because you're just faithful in little small things today. You never know. You never know. So see your place. Mock your gods. Set your aim on legacy. And move away from that drift, that constant drift toward immediacy. Because you never know what God may do as he writes you into the bigger story that he is authoring. Let's pray together. Father, today, we're thankful for Ruth and Boaz. We're thankful for their faithfulness. We're thankful for their kindness, their loving kindness. We're thankful for the way that you worked in and through them to bring forth your purposes. 
that is not just some random story tucked away in the Old Testament, but the end of the story is what you are moving history toward. And how their story was wrapped up in the high point of Israel's history and the high point of human history, God, so may ours also be. Because while we look back in this season on your son who has come, we also look forward to his second coming. And we know that right now he delays, that there is a delay from our perspective. It's right on time from your perspective, but a delay from our perspective so that you might give all men everywhere the chance to repent. And God, that we would see our story wrapped up in that story. Not in the story of consumerism, by consuming people and consuming things to find our significance and measure it based on what we can see here and now. And that we would not find our significance wrapped up in the story of individualism that says, look inside, find your truth, live that out regardless of the consequences and what relationships it severs, and do not succumb or submit to any external parameters. But that we would yield to you in humble submission. And as we do, God, that you might use us for your glory and the good of this community and the good of this world. Help us by your grace to mock these little G-gods in our lives that demand so much of our attention. And help us to see our place standing on the shoulders of those who've come before and knowing that there will be those who stand on our shoulders after and that those things might help us recite and set our aim on legacy and not immediacy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.